It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome back to the National Security Hour on the America Out Loud talk radio network on iHeartRadio, the voice of freedom, the out loud truth, where you come to hear military and intel experts. America Out Loud talk radio plays on the iHeartRadio network. You can also listen to us on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in-class apps available on Apple, Android, Alexa, and we stream 24-7. So this is where you want to come, 24-7 to get all the stream, all the shows, all the latest, all the greatest. You want to get the news right away, no matter where you are in the world. All of our shows go to podcasts, typically one or two days after the broadcast is live. And you can hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeart Podcasts, and many, many more. Be sure to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for us, because we get a good gauge of who's listening, where you're listening from, okay? And be sure to make AmericaOutloud.com your daily stop for the latest news and happenings. We all must do our part and share the stories, the articles, and the videos so that we can help secure America's future. Now more than ever, you really have to do this, okay? So let's just go right to it. This is part two, History Friday with Jeff Shepard. It's 50th anniversary of the Watergate hearings. It's the 50th anniversary of Watergate. No one knows this better than Jeff. He has three books out. This is part two. We want to continue and we want to thank Jeff Shepard for coming back on the National Security Hour. Welcome back, Jeff. Thank you, Mike. Good to be back with you both. Well, it's been a great week. A lot of stuff to talk about this week. So why don't you start it up? Well, let's let's recap from part one and then talk about this past week. Uh, the thrust of part one uh, was that the prosecutorial discretion being exercised against Donald Trump and in favor of Hunter Biden, didn't really start with these folks. Stretches all the way back to Robert Kennedy, who was attorney general and uh, set out to get Hoffa. And uh, it was the group he he recruited to the Department of Justice when he was attorney general was called the Get Hoffa Squad. And they did. Then you hurry forward to Nixon, where I was on the White House staff for five years, and a member of his defense team, and we lost rather badly, uh, that was the Get Nixon squad. It was many of the same people, many of the same procedures uh, that had been followed earlier in the uh, Kennedy-Johnson Department of Justice. In fact, that while Robert Kennedy personally recruited 20 lawyers to get Hoffa, uh, Archibald Cox, and James Vorenberg to Harvard professors who were running the Special Prosecution Force, recruited 60 uh, lawyers to get Nixon and his staff members, the top 17 of whom had all worked together in the Kennedy-Johnson Department of Justice. Then you hurry forward 50 years. It's not the same people, even though I was around for for, uh, at least to get Nixon. But what you see today is an unbelievable onslaught of people dedicated to getting Trump. In fact, there's a recent book out by my uh, former criminal law professor at Harvard Law School, Professor Alan Dershowitz, and it's entitled Get Trump. And I'll 
Durst doesn't like Trump. He doesn't like Nixon, for that matter. But he believes every American gets the due process guarantees of our Fifth and Sixth Amendments. And Allen is very troubled at the corners being cut and the all-out onslaught to get Trump. So that's what we talked about. Uh, and, and then, of course, in the intervening week, last Tuesday of this week, uh, Trump gets indicted on, on four more counts. And you sit there and say, wow, this is really a scorched earth policy. Uh, Trump is indicted for everything. Trump's people are indicted and, and convicted over the, over the past couple of years. Mike Flynn and, and Steve Bannon and uh uh, Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, uh, they all get indicted and, and uh, serve time. Uh, but on the other side, nobody gets indicted. Uh, Lois Lerner at the IRS or Hillary Clinton or or her uh, compatriot who l- l- published all those emails or transferred them to uh, unsecure servers. Uh, FBI agents, Peter Strozak and Lisa Page, uh, Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, they, there are plenty of reasons for them to be investigated, but somehow they always walk free. And so it is with Hunter Biden. But dirt, but uh, Alan, uh, uh, Donald Trump is indicted on four more counts on Tuesday. Now, there's something unique about those counts that I, I, I want to discuss for a couple of minutes, and that's their conspiracy charges. The law of conspiracy is a very, very strange and troubling law, and your listeners and viewers should know that. The original purpose, the original justification for the law uh, was that it's more dangerous if two people are intent on doing something to break the law than it is if it's just one, and the government shouldn't have to wait until the criminal action is actually brought to fruition, the plan to do it should be enough to prosecute. Hence, a conspiracy can be hatched earlier than the actual crime. Like many safeguards or or uses, what happened with a conspiracy law was exploitation by prosecutors uh, because conspiracy charges are much easier to prove than the actual crime. You see, the individual being accused doesn't have to have committed the crime itself. He just has to have been shown to be part of a conspiracy where somebody else committed the crime. And because of that, communications amongst co-conspirators aren't subject to the hearsay rule. So prosecutors immediately have two legs up on any case. And the third specialty of conspiracy law is it's a thought crime. It's not so much what you did as prosecutors can convince a jury what you were thinking about when you did it. It could just be opening the garage door. But if they can convince the jury that was a step in furtherance of a conspiracy, then they can nail you. You can be found guilty. And of course, if the jury doesn't like you, uh, it's much easier for them to project evil intent. 
So conspiracy laws are very scary. Uh, uh, it, it, it's one of those things where you say, well, look, why don't you prove the real crime? Because it looks like a double standard of justice here. You're throwing everything against this person that you can, plus conspiracy counts. And it should be very troubling for people who believe in a common standard of justice. Now, with that being said, in part one, we covered comparison of Get Hoffa uh, uh, with Robert Kennedy. Now, his son is running for president, but Robert Kennedy then get Nixon with Harvard professors. Harvard professors are, are around to help and uh, uh, get Trump of today. One of the things I want to talk about, which I, I find intriguing, is to compare and contrast two sweetheart deals. I want to call this a tale of two sweethearts. And here's why. We know Hunter Biden just got uh, or is in the process of getting a sweetheart deal. Here's a guy who's been under investigation for five years. Here's a guy who uh, we were told every time something suspicious comes up, it's referred to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Wilmington, which is running the case. Here's a guy where whistleblowers came out and said, you know, we wanted to prosecute. We wanted to question people. We, we wanted to, to ask questions of Biden family members. We wanted to cover down on this and search uh, storage bins. Uh, and we were always thwarted. We had people uh, that agreed at the Department of Justice to go forward with felony prosecutions, and then somehow it was all stopped. We, we were removed from the case because we were so eager to proceed. We were told the idea of questioning Biden family members was a career-threatening item. And this all came out in uh, congressional hearings in the House after this sweetheart deal for Hunter Biden was announced. He was going to be allowed to plead to two misdemeanor tax violations and his uh, troubles, his potential felony for gun registration fraud uh, was going to be diverted. Hmm. And that's what we were told. And that was supposed to happen uh, uh, on the 26th of, uh, of July. Then these whistleblowers came out and testified and things got pretty tense. And there was an effort to say, you know, the judge shouldn't accept this. And then it got worse. As it turns out, and I know nothing about the background. I, I'm, a, I'm an expert on Watergate. I'm not an expert on today. But I read the paper. And I watch the broadcast. And it turns out the judge was only shown the actual language of the plea agreement and the diversion the morning of that hearing. And that the diversion agreement, the diversion on the, the uh, charges for the gun violation, contained very, very unprecedented uh, material. At, at paragraph 15, we didn't know it then, we know it now, that seemed to give Hunter immunity for prosecution for everything else in perpetuity, 
and was included in the agreement, not in the agreement, but in the diversion form in such a way the judge couldn't change it. Uh, the only thing the judge was called upon to do was accept uh, uh, the plea agreement. And the judge asks the question, does this prevent Hunter from being charged with Foreign Agent Act violations? And then a very intriguing thing happened. And I'm sure you know all this because you've been watching the news too. Yes. Uh, uh, the Department of Justice said, well, no, it doesn't protect him. And, and Hunter's defense lawyer stood up and said, well, if it doesn't, then there's no agreement. And then you've got this peculiar situation where the Department of Justice wanted the judge to believe this was all a miscommunication. But that language didn't get there because some little elf put it there. Mm-hmm. That language <laughs> was hammered out between the two parties. And, and the public can ask themselves, who the heck was representing the public? You've got a Department of Justice seemingly looking out for Hunter and the Biden family, and Biden's defense attorneys working hand in glove with them. Now, that's Biden's former sweetheart plea agreement. That's what we're going to wait and see. The judge refused to accept it, asked for briefings, and said, you can have uh, 30 days to come back in and tell me precisely what you mean. Uh, So we'll have a better understanding and and it will be clear what you have in mind. Let me switch for a second to John Dean's plea agreement. Because the situation, if, if I could, was exactly the opposite. John Dean was the Watergate hero. He he was the hero of the Irvin Committee. He was the president's lawyer who turned on his colleagues and, and, and said there was a conspiracy. And the public was told this guy came forward, very brave young lawyer came forward to tell us the truth. The difficulty was in the prosecution, the defense team for the senior Nixon associates, Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman and John Mitchell, weren't bound by the public narrative. And they would take John Dean apart. He'd been disbarred by the Virginia Bar Association because he was accused of suborning perjury. That's encouraging other people to lie to the grand jury, of destroying evidence taken from Howard Hunt's safe, of embezzling campaign funds to pay for his honeymoon, and of authorizing the payment of hush money to Watergate burglars. So in a court of law, John Dean would not come across as some kind of heroic angel. And the department, the justice people, the Watergate Special Prosecution Force, wanted to build up his credibility because he was their lead witness. Now, in fact, several months before, the first case had come to trial in New York. It's called the Vesco case. It was a prosecution of improper campaign money, and it involved two cabinet officers uh, as defendants, John Mitchell, the attorney general, and Maurice Stans, the secretary of commerce. And John Dean was again a lead witness, and these two gentlemen were acquitted, much to the shock of the uh, prosecuting attorneys. And when they interviewed 
jurors after the case, after the acquittal, the surprise acquittal, they said they simply didn't find John Dean credible. So in the upcoming cases in Washington, the prosecutors and the judge, Judge Sirica was on their side, needed to enhance John Dean's witness credibility. Hold that thought a minute, Jeff. Hold that thought. We're coming down to the last minute, and then we're going to go to the other side. Go ahead. Okay. One minute. Okay. One minute. Go ahead. Okay. The, uh, uh, the, the issue was how do we show this guy's being punished, even if we don't intend to punish him? Because he's, he's our main witness. Well, there you go. It's, the word is enhanced in quotation marks. So uh, just like Hunter Biden with a sweetheart deal, we have John Dean. We're coming up on the commercial. This has been a great show so far. This is part two. We're going to go to commercial. And then we're going to come back on the other side, continue with Jeff Shepard and Dr. Michael Shoyer and myself. Today, your host, Colonel Mike, Dr. Mike on the National Security Hour. We're doing History Friday with Jeff Shepard. We'll see you on the other side. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution, the miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Welcome back to the National Security Hour. You're on with Dr. Michael Shorey and Colonel Mike. Today is History Friday, and we're happy to have back with us for part two, Jeff Shepard. Jeff Shepard is a Watergate specialist, 50th anniversary. We want to continue with Jeff, but before we do, Mike, do you have anything to say to Jeff Shepard? Yeah, I just wanted to congratulate you, Mr. Shepard, on uh, your presentation in part one, which drew exactly to the point that occurred a week after we taped your program. In the sense that, uh, uh, you know, uh, people were were going to be acquitted uh, illegally. And it's and also probably more important, uh, the historical um, trip we've taken 
from Hoffa to Nixon to uh, Trump. You're, you were prescient and, and brilliant in that description, and it all came true, which for a historian, there can be no better reward. So congratulations, sir. And, and I want to congratulate him also. Uh, the fact that, and I want to say this because, you know, RFK Jr. is running for president. Remember, <coughs> RFK Sr. was the Merrick Garland of his day. Please continue, Jeff. Well, that's an understatement. Uh, uh, RFK <laughs> Sr. Uh, 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 turned the Department of Justice into a, uh, a spear that would go after political enemies uh, uh, unrelentingly. Uh, uh, boy, if if Bobby Kennedy took a dislike to you, there was no place to hide. They'd investigate and investigate and indict and re-indict. Uh, uh, lots of lots of scholars uh, key the the dramatic changes under the Department of Justice to this very young man, the youngest attorney general in history, who's whose brother was president, so he felt he could do anything he wanted, and and in fact, he did. Uh, When we went for the break, I'm going to go back to this now, we were describing the situation involving John Dean, publicly the Watergate hero that the press is lauding and the Irvin Committee made into a hero, but in in, in fact, heavily involved in the criminality that led, led to Watergate. He'd been allowed to plead to a single felony in October of 73. Now, that wasn't hard to work out because the lead prosecutor of the Watergate crimes was a lawyer named uh, 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 James Neal. And James Neal was one of the two lawyers that prosecuted Hoffa in the Tennessee cases took him seven years, but he secured the uh, conviction. Hoffa described him once as the meanest SOB he'd ever met. Dean's lawyer was a Democrat, prominent Democrat lawyer named Charles Schaffer. And Charles Schaffer had been James Neal's co-counsel in the Tennessee prosecutions of James Hoffa. So these two guys, two prosecutors, had worked hand in glove for seven years. It was not hard for them to come to terms to work out a plea bargain for John Dean. But then what happened, as I was describing before, Dean's testimony in the New York case was not believed. So the prosecutors and the judge were fishing around for a way to increase his juror credibility. Now, what happened in New York was the defense lawyers has said to John when he was on the stand, you're just testifying that way to curry favor in the hopes of a more lenient sentence when you get back down to Washington for the Watergate prosecutions. You've already pled guilty. So Sirica says, and he writes in his book, I decided to deny them that argument by giving John Dean his sentence in advance of trial. Now, this is totally unprecedented. You turn state's evidence, you plead to a, to a felony, you testify at the trial, and then you are sentenced, not before the trial. But in a very hurried-up hearing, Judge Sirica sentences John Dean to one to four years in prison, the harshest sentence handed down 
to any cover-up uh, defendant at that time. John Dean describes in his book how devastating he was, one to four years. This was tougher than anybody. What was he to do? Uh, his lawyer, who's Charles Schaffer, says, well, maybe you'll be set up perfectly for a motion to reduce sentence after, after the case. And when, when Sirica announces the sentence, there's no speech from the bench. There's no, you know, you did wrong. You've come forward, but you still have to be punished for what you did, because what you did, you did knowingly. None of that. He says, it's up for sentencing. Here's John Dean. I sentence you to one to four years. Court adjourned. So there were no remarks to go back on. John Dean, and, and, and incarceration of John Dean is to coincide with the opening day of the cover-up trial. So John Dean is the first witness. He's testifying from prison, and his message is quite clear. There was a Watergate conspiracy to cover up. I know I ran it. I was chief desk officer. I, I pled guilty. I'm in prison. I'm being punished. These are my colleagues. It's my word against theirs, but they were in on it. You should punish them too. And he was successful. John Dean, Bob Haldeman, and John Mitchell were convicted on all counts. The trial lasted over three months. The jury deliberated for less than a day. And on January 1st, 1975, they convicted these three guys of all counts. And there you have it. One week later, on his own motion, Judge Sirica reduces John Dean's sentence to time served. So John Dean was only technically incarcerated for less than four months, the shortest, shortest sentence of any Watergate defendant. And then it gets worse. It turns out John Dean never spent a single night in a jail cell. While he was sentenced to one to four years in prison, in fact, he was assigned to a witness protection program he was housed at a nearby military base set up to protect figures who were going to testify against the mob, <clears throat> where he had his own office and he had conjugal visits from his wife. Uh, in fact, if you listened very carefully to John Dean's testimony at the opening of the Trump impeachment hearings before the House Judiciary Committee, uh, a couple of years ago, John Dean was the, the symbolic opening witness. He actually says at one point, I never went to prison. Because it's true. Now, the American public was bamboozled. The Watergate jury was bamboozled. It was uh, uh, until Hunter Biden's deal. It was the most sweet of a sweetheart plea deal. And the public was kept from that. Now, Hunter's was exposed in open court the day it was presented. That didn't work for John Dean. John Dean got away with it. The only thing that happened to Dean uh, in all of Watergate was the Virginia Bar Association, which somehow didn't get the memo that Dean was a hero. And they disbarred him for subordination of perjury, destruction of evidence, embezzlement, 
and, and authorizing the payment of hush money. And he's been, that was in February of 1974, and he's been disbarred ever since. You've no doubt seen him on TV. He's introduced as the president's lawyer. He gives ethics seminars across the country, but he's never introduced as a disbarred lawyer. In fact, one of the fun things is in most states, lawyers are required to take continuing legal education, usually 12 or 15 hours each year, one or two hours of which must be for ethics. So John Dean goes around the country putting on these seminars for these lawyers who have to get ethics credits anyway, but they can only be taught or lectured by a licensed lawyer. John Dean is not a licensed lawyer. So some shill real lawyer sits on the stage while John Dean tells stories about Watergate. And if that wow. lawyer didn't participate, everybody in the audience couldn't get CLE credit because John Dean's not and has not been since 1974 authorized to practice law in any state. So talk about a sweetheart plea deal. I still think John's is better than Hunter's at this point. We'll see what happens when the prosecutors and the and and uh, Hunter's defense lawyers come back into court uh, before the end of this month to try again. And we'll see what comes out in the interim from the House investigations. Now, I I was there 50 years ago. I lived through this. And I've spent the last 20 years researching the, the secret files, the internal files of the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. We know today a whole lot more than we did at the time. When we did at the time, it was all accepted because there was a single narrative. Now, I'll pause for questions if the, if the mics have questions, but I want to switch topics and talk about the parallels of secrecy that existed with Get Hoffa versus Get Nixon. But let me go ahead. You, Mike, you go first and then I'll go next. Okay. I just wanted to ask uh, Jeff, has anyone ever challenged Dean's ability to do this by the, the subterfuge of having another lawyer on the stage? Well, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've tried and someone else has tried. Uh, there is a, uh, a another individual known to me who believes that while Mark Felt was nominally deep throat, that he was getting his information from John Dean. Uh, uh, before Mark Felt came out, this individual maintained John Dean was actually deep throat. He signed up for one of these seminars and went to the seminar and challenged John Dean and Dean's ability to do this. Uh, you know, if you don't have the microphone and you're in the audience, you don't control. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't come no. off very well. I, I tried a different tactic. I checked with the American Law Institute and I said, you know, you shouldn't be a party of this. You shouldn't allow a disbarred lawyer to teach legal courses for credit. And they said, we've never sponsored one of these seminars. 
what his shill lawyer does is go around to a big law firm. And the big law firms in most states are allowed by the Bar Association to put on their own programs. So they sponsor the program. It's not reviewed in advance. It's not condoned by the state bar, but these are big law firms. So never hesitant. I contacted the officer in the California State Bar Association who should have been approving these programs. He was responsible for continuing legal education for the State Bar Association of California. And I explained what was going on. And we decided we'd go to lunch. So when I was visiting San Francisco, I took him to lunch, one of my favorite places, some old fashioned restaurant, Sam's, as I recall. I was just a visitor, had a great lunch, nice guy, made my pitch. And then I learned that when he was a young man uh, and looking to get married, uh, he and his fiance went to Washington, sought out Judge Sirica, whom they believed to be one of the greatest heroes of all time, and had Judge Sirica conduct their wedding. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, was, that was when I realized I wasn't going to make any progress with the Bar Association of the State of California. So I, no. and, and I, won't, I won't go. I won't go to these. But what, what I'm told John Dean does, this is really strange. He talks about the incredible wrongdoing of all the other lawyers involved in Watergate and never gets around to talking about himself. Uh, and yeah. then he sells books. You know, why not? He'll autograph the books. There, there's another lawyer, he's passed away, uh, who was on the Irvin Committee, and they got him, I'm told, this is hearsay, because I, I didn't go to the seminars, that they got him to say on film, a little vignette they'd play at the seminar, where he said, you know, the ethics requirements of uh, lawyers precluded John from telling people that the witnesses were lying. I mean, now, John Dean rehearsed a couple of witnesses to lie. Uh, so he sure knew what was going on. <laughs> and, and he never came forward to disclose any of that stuff because he ran the cover up until he sought to switch sides and, and, and blame his colleagues. And this law professor said, well, he was required by attorney-client privilege existent at the time. He, he couldn't tell anybody that these crimes were going on, which, with all respect, is a total fraud because government lawyers aren't subject to attorney-client privilege. The government lawyer represents the office, not the individual. And Coming down to last two minutes, yeah. last two minutes, right. Mike and Jeff, go ahead. The, the government is required, government lawyers, to inform the Department of Justice of, of, of any ongoing wrongdoing. I mean, it's just open and shut. But they, I'm sure they paid the guy, you know, every time they showed his little vignette and a little, add a little excuse. The other thing, and I'll, I'll finish here before we switch topics, John Cain will tell you he was never convicted in the Watergate case. And it turns out what he means, he pled guilty to a felony. What he means <laughs> is there was never a trial. No jury 
found him guilty because John Dean pled. But it's the kind of word games that he's played his whole life, his whole life. I'm going to stop there. Okay, we have one minute. We're going to go to break. You're on the National Security Hour with Dr. Michael Shorey and Colonel Mike. And today our guest again, second time, part two. Happy to have him back. Jeff Shepard, who has so much knowledge. It's the 50th anniversary of Watergate. And this is part two we're discussing about Watergate. And we're comparing some of these notes with RFK and uh, Garland and uh, John Dean and Hunter Biden. And we're going to go to a commercial. We're going to come back to the last segment on the other side. This just gets better and better as we go along. So Jeff, hang in. Mike, hang in. And to all of you listening, hang in. We'll be back on the other side. While the cancel culture destroys our history, bringing crime and terror to city streets, America Out Loud dot News will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution. And now we have a throat spray too crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Welcome back to the National Security Hour. You're on with Dr. Michael Shoy, Colonel Mike, and today, History Friday, Part 2 with Jeff Shepard, 50 Years with Watergate. And he's got three books out, and we'll put them in the footnotes, and we'll maybe even mention them at the end of the show. Jeff, we want to welcome you back. I have a little question. Where was Judge Sirica from? Because I remember at the time they, they, they kept speaking about where he was from originally. Was he a New Jersey judge? No, he was chief judge of uh, the district of uh, District of Columbia. Okay, District uh, of Columbia. He, he moved around a lot. He has an autobiography uh, to set the record straight is his book. Uh, and he moved around an awful lot. Uh, uh, one of his 
chief detractors is a lady named Renata Adler that had been on the uh, House impeachment inquiry. And uh, she then went on, she then went to law school, and then she went on to become editor, I think, of the Saturday uh, Review. It was a magazine in New York. Uh, uh, and maybe it was New York Magazine, but she wrote an article uh, or, or a book, The Last Great Days of the New York Magazine, New Yorker Magazine. Mm-hmm. And she had a sentence in there saying when she was editor, <clears throat> she wouldn't review Sirica's book because he was a, uh, a, a crook. He was close to organized crime and, and, and she wanted nothing to do with him. And and what happened was uh, Sirica's son was with Newsday and on Long a Long uh, uh, Long Island uh, and pitched a hissy fit, and so the <laughs> New York Times took after Renata Adler uh, and and just beat her up unmercifully with articles and letters to the editor and all this, and then she published an article a couple years later that just took Sirica apart. I mean, hey, she Chip. went through his background and his his mm-hmm. uh, yeah you know he. He dropped out of law school twice. He, 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 he was the most surprised guy in the world uh, to pass the Bar Association. He lost his first 13 cases as a, uh, a, a, a federal prosecutor. He was foisted off on the courts by his law firm that, that needed to get rid of a nonproductive partner. Uh, and he, 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 he was the most reverse judge in, in the district court. And he became senior by by seniority became chief judge by seniority not by merit uh and it was just a a terrible terrible judge but of course the media made him a hero he was against nixon and they named him time magazine's man of the year oh my gosh just just astonishing and he's up there proud as a peacock dumb as a post denying these defendants the elements of due process meeting secretly with the Watergate prosecutors, working out stuff in advance. I mean, it was just unbelievable. But he was a local boy. He was a local boy. So let me ask you a question. Another question I have is, where did Chuck Col- uh, Colson fit into this? You must have knew Chuck Colson from those days. Well, yes, I, I, I knew Chuck. I was not close to Chuck. I did not like Chuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much wood could have wood Chuck Chuck? Uh, Chuck's <laughs> office was directly across the hall from mine in the old EOB. Uh-huh. He was special counsel to the president, and he, he wasn't a part of the domestic council that did policy work like I did. Uh, uh, he became very close to Nixon because he could play to the dark side, uh, uh, and he kept getting Nixon all riled up over perceived wrongdoings. Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman didn't like it when Chuck got up with Nixon because bad things followed. Uh, quick story. I was in Chuck's office in a meeting and his, his, the wall between his office was on the other side of the wall was the president's hideaway office in the old EOB where Nixon would go every afternoon to think and contemplate and talk in detail with his aides. We have the tapes. Uh, and Chuck was called in. Nixon asked to see him about something. So he stepped out of our meeting. He said, I'll be right back. He just wants to check something. <clears throat> and while we were waiting, Chuck's secretary, Joan Hall, 
called me to the window. Now, the windows looked out on West Exact. We could see the West Wing. It's directly across the street. And she says, watch. Within a few seconds, Bob Haldeman will come running across the street. And damned if it didn't happen. Out comes Bob Haldeman walking as fast as he can from the West Wing up the steps of the old DOB to Nixon's hideaway office. And Joan says they have told the receptionist who sits outside the hideaway office that if Colson comes in to see the Nixon, Haldeman or Ortman must be alerted immediately or she'll be fired because wow. they are afraid to allow Nixon to be alone with Colson. Now, they did succeed after the first term, after Nixon was reelected, they finally got rid of Chuck because Nixon would never again run for office. And they thought they were in the clear, but then of course came the tapes and the tapes of Nixon's conversations with Colson are the worst. Just, just to finish up, there was one I remember. Nixon has spoken to the newspaper editors or something like that. Remember, I, I transcribed the tapes. And it, it, the tape doesn't say, now we're starting this meeting. There's no tag that says this occurs at, at 13 minutes, two seconds into the tape. <clears throat> you got to fish around looking for the conversation you're supposed to transcribe. So I would hear segments of stuff that wasn't under subpoena uh, that I wasn't transcribing, but just trying to get to my conversation. And one of them was Nixon coming back. I, uh, I, I forget whether the Oval Office or the EOB or, or by phone after a meeting with newspaper editors. And he talks with Haldeman, his chief of staff, and Haldeman says, you know, you did a fine job, and I particularly liked your answer to this question, but you could have done a little bit better on that question, and you're not going to get any credit anyway because they hate you. So, you know, we tried, but it's not really going to redound to our benefit. And so it was a straight-from-the-shoulder, candid criticism of what had been done. Colson comes on in a separately recorded phone call, and he's such a sycophant. Oh, oh, you were fantastic. You know, we were wandering in the wilderness and, and you're like Caesar. You've come upon the landscape <laughs> and you're leading us properly. I mean, it was sickening to listen to. Uh, but in any event, uh, that's 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 Chuck Colson. Now, he didn't deserve to be prosecuted. One of the interesting things about Colson is he was a unbelievable advocate of Nixon, and he was eager to be out front to defend Nixon, but he wasn't involved in the break-in or the cover-up. They wanted to indict him anyway because he was such a prominent Nixon supporter. And of the many documents I've uncovered in the prosecution's files, there's two that record or note the discussion of whether they ought to indict Colson or not for the cover-up. Mm -hmm. And on one, this is the same meeting, two recorders, two note-takers. One has Jaworski saying, I'm familiar with the case. I've met with Colson. 
and his lawyer, who is a prominent Democrat, David Shapiro, uh, and I know the facts. But I'm willing to sign the, and I know it's a weak case. Both notes say this. I know it's a weak case. But I'm willing to sign the indictment. And one says, uh, uh, because of what he, what he said uh, uh, about Nixon, and the other has him say, because I'd really like to nail him. Those are the words in the notes, because mm. I'd really like to nail him. So it's really intriguing that that, uh, uh, that, that happens. Uh, they decide, oh, the, one of the questions of the prosecuting team that comes in to recommend who should be indicted in the cover-up case, they ask the prosecutor what the odds are of convicting Colson, because it's it's a weak case. And the guy says 50-50. Now, the rule in the Department of Justice to prosecute then and now is it's not, can you convince a grand jury to indict? That's probable cause. It's if a jury knows everything you know, is it more likely than not they'll convict? You have a high degree of confidence that if you bring this guy to trial, you can convict. And that is not 50-50. 50-50 is a, is a coin toss. So the next day, the number three prosecutor writes Jaworski a two-page memo. And he says, you know, we can't do this. Including Colson violates DOJ guidelines. And it, it, I mean, this is, this is unprecedented to write your boss to put it in writing, you shouldn't indict this guy. <laughs> and he says, nicely, he says, everybody else in the room, except the prosecution team, I mean, everybody else in the reviewing uh, group that was reviewing the recommendation was against including Colson. And then there's notes where the guy says, the note taker in the staff meeting, he says, this caused quite a hullabaloo, uh, uh, you know, because he wrote this memo. And so there was another meeting to discuss Colson. And then it says in brackets, in the guy's notes, collect memo. Because they sure as hell didn't want this attorney's memo complaining about Colson's inclusion sitting around. Mm -hmm. They picked up every copy, apparently, except <laughs> Jaworski's own copy that he took with him when he left office and went back to Texas. And that's the one I found. Uh, so that's yeah. Colson. I didn't like him. He, he, he made me feel very uncomfortable, uh, but he really got unfairly hung out to dry uh, by politicized prosecutors. But he only did like seven months in an Alabama uh, boot camp, like kind of a military camp, didn't he? Something like that. Yeah, if you pled out, uh, you were you were asked to plead to a single felony, and he got six months. He may have gotten seven. Or <clears throat> they didn't dare put him in a real jail; he wouldn't have survived. Did the same thing with Mitchell. But see, mm -hmm. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Mitchell chose to stand trial. They're right, mm -hmm. and they were sentenced to. Two and a half to eight years by maximum John Sirica. Uh, and each of them served 18 months in federal minimum security prisons. Uh, Haldeman was at Lompoc, which is out near LA. I think 
Ehrlichman did time at a federal minimum security prison in New Mexico, uh, and John Mitchell uh, at, I think it's MacArthur Air Force Base, because again, they didn't think he'd survive if they put him in a prison with people his Department of Justice had convicted. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but it, roughly 18 months each, uh, uh, when, whereas the prosecutors would have you believe if they pled out, uh, they would have much reduced sentences. But there was a caveat. If you entered into a plea agreement, you had to tell the prosecutors about any and every event in Nixon's life right. that was suspect. I mean, you so talk about we, I think the last guy, I think the last guy that got big time, and he was up in Danbury, Connecticut, I think, was Liddy. Liddy had uh, max time in, in a hardcore joint, didn't he? You bet he did, and it was a hardcore joint. He was sentenced, I think, to something like 35 years. Liddy, you remember, was the Iron Man of Watergate. He wouldn't talk. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and it's it's really odd uh, because he, he he thought he thought that was so cool. He was being so loyal. He wouldn't talk to anybody about anything, uh, you know, uh, like the mafia pledge of Omerta. Right. Uh, and the difficulty is that when this all came apart, Nixon is meeting with and talking with Henry Peterson, the head of the criminal division. And he says, we got to have the truth come out. You know, I mean, that, this whole thing has, because Nixon was not, didn't think he'd done anything wrong at this point. He, he, he was not informed of what his people were doing. John Dean kept from him the cover-up for nine months. So he says to Henry, we've got it on the, I've got it on the tape, just on a phone call. And he says to Henry, you know, I, I don't represent Liddy. I, I don't have any influence over him. But I want him to come tell everything. I want him to come clean. That's what's going to help us get through this. Truth is going to come out anyway. He should come clean. And then he calls back and he says, you know, you got to tell the lawyer that, his lawyer that right away. And why don't you call him tonight? And then he calls Henry back again. This is nine o'clock at night. And he says, you tell his lawyer that I want him to come clean. He's not helping me by being mm -hmm. quiet. And if his lawyer doesn't believe you, we'll drag his ass in here and I'll <laughs> tell him myself. That's on the tape. So Nixon, much later, says, and, and Liddy never comes clean until he writes his book seven years later. Nixon gives a speech to the nation. He says, you know, I tried to bring the truth out. I told Peterson to tell his lawyer I'd meet with him to tell him I wanted the truth to come out. And there's this memo. There's this memo in the file written by the same guy who complained about Colson's indictment. And it says, I got this call from Liddy's lawyer yesterday, today. And Liddy's lawyer says, Nixon said last night that he wanted me to be told that he wanted Liddy to come clean and he would meet with me in person to make that emphasis. Henry Peterson never told me that. <laughs> Henry Peterson told me that the president wanted Liddy to come clean, but that in a dime. He never said the president was willing to meet with me. You know, I was always for Liddy telling the truth. I mean, he, he would have gotten off much easier 
even right. though he committed all these crimes, if he told the truth. But we were never asked that. And you okay, we've got the final two minutes, Jeff. I want to just say something. Legend has it, and this goes back a lot of years. Legend has it. He was one of the most badass prisoners up in Connecticut. Some guys try to jump on him and take him out. You know, you remember he was a little tough guy. Yeah. Um, but he was very good in the martial arts. Yeah. And he damaged some people very seriously yeah. that, that the mob caped him and said, do you want protection? And he told the mob, no, I'll protect you. <laughs> he, he was a tough guy. Uh, he really uh, was. Adler says that he was uh, much of his confinement was in the D.C. jail because Sirica would never finalize his sentence to hold him beholden to Sirica. And the D.C. jail at the time had no air conditioning. And this is her word. I don't know. And she right. said there were times when he was the only white prisoner in the D.C. jail. Yeah. And then I, I, I know uh, I've heard this story uh, uh, in, in the other uh, other prison. I think it was a fight over a hairbrush. And Liddy wasn't taking guff from anybody. There right. was another situation to show how tough he was. Now, you remember the candle trick? He held his hand over a candle. Right, right. <laughs> flesh. He did the same thing in prison. He set the hair on his forearm on fire to show how tough he was. He was he was beyond the pale. Just all right. We got it. We got we got to sign off. We got to sign off. We can continue. Jeff, it's been great having you on for the second part. We want to thank you always. And you're welcome back as this unveils the 50th year. Thanks, my friend. Uh, and we want to thank all our, our listeners. I want to thank my co-host, Dr. Michael Scheuer. And I want to thank the listeners around the globe. Thank you for joining us on the mission. The National Security Hour is the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. And we mean that. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.